Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis 46. And this will be really the next to last message in Genesis. Can you believe it? We uh, we started in July and uh, started with Genesis chapter one, and we have walked almost through all of Genesis. And I pray this won't be the last time you walk through Genesis. Um, I pray also it's been as much of a blessing and encouragement and challenge in your life as it has been in mine. Um, really enjoyed teaching through this with you all. It's been a joy. And I encourage you too. I don't know if you realize this or not, but when you came in and you got a little handout that says Genesis on it, uh, on the back side of that is actually a bunch of, uh, is, is, alright, let's take this from here and go do something with it. And so there's a couple blanks that I encourage you to look at on the back of that when we get through today. And then, uh, if you, if you generally, which I think most of you do, if you generally eat lunch on Sundays, um, there's some questions on there. And uh, have that be a part of your lunch discussion. Great way to follow up and actually dive a little deeper into Scripture than just our time here together. So I encourage you uh, to do that. Now, when we last uh, left our narrative, we saw a big reveal. If you were with us, you remember uh, Undercover Boss, uh, Undercover Brother, Egypt Edition last week. Um, Joseph's brothers return uh, to their father and they testify about what has taken place and that Joseph is indeed alive. And uh, after being reluctant to believe his sons, uh, Jacob agrees to go to Egypt before he dies. And from now until the end of the letter, what we're going to see are the final years of Jacob's life. Jacob, also known as Israel and see his life finished out and really the transition what takes place in chapters 46 through 50 is the transition between the narrative of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the development of what becomes the nation of Israel into Exodus which details the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt so Just to give you some historical timeline here that's important for you to understand the scope of where this is leading to and how it ties into the whole. Now, the primary reason in setting the stage here is really focus, and this is where I want us to end up, church family. We can read the Bible and develop a whole bunch of knowledge of the Bible Or we can read the Bible and understand a whole lot better who God is. 
And I really want to challenge you to spend time in the Word, spend time in Scripture, not just so you know Scripture. There's benefit to that. But the most important piece of spending time in God's Word is to know God. And if we spend our lives going through the pages of Scripture and we lose sight of God in the process, you have missed the point from the beginning. That's one of the reasons I wanted us to take a panned back view of Genesis is so you can get out of the weeds of, well, what about this little detail and this little detail? That's good, but it's not good if we separate that from the broader picture of who is God and what is his redemptive plan. How is he going to save his people and therefore translates over to how can I be saved? Now in Egypt, what you're going to see play out, and especially if you were to take this on and read into Exodus, is that the nation of Israel prospers and grows beyond measure before Exodus. But we need to understand how God brought them to be there and what he's moving towards. So look at chapter 46, verse 1. It says, so Israel, that's Jacob, they're one and the same took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation." I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, a a few things we need to take note of here. Number one is the significance of Beersheba. He goes down to Beersheba, which is on the way to Egypt, but more specifically is very rich in history. Specifically in his family history. For in Genesis 21, we see that Abraham made this treaty or covenant with Abimelech and called the place Beersheba. It was in Beersheba that Abraham's faith had shown the brightest when he followed the command of the Lord to sacrifice his son Isaac. That's where this took place. And God provided a lamb and said, now I know, now I know where your, where your faith is, Abraham. It was here that Isaac later experienced the presence of the Lord. He built an altar there and then was assured three different times that the Lord was with him in chapter 26. Significant. And then Jacob himself knew about Beersheba because it had been where he had lived in the early days of his life. So there's a lot of history. And we can imagine the emotions Jacob's having as he steps back into this place and recognizes the great history here. He builds an altar here. And the the second thing I want us to really look at is what God communicates to Jacob as he is journeying to Egypt. We can only speculate how what kind of emotions were revolving around in Jacob's mind at this point. 
He's been told his son that he thought was dead for the last couple decades is now alive. He has experienced immense tragedy, loss, grief, heartbreak, anxiety. They're in the midst of a famine. In the midst of that, look at the specifics about what God says. In verse 3, God starts with a simple statement. I am God. The God of your father. And then says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now, I think it's logical for us to assume if God said, Jacob, don't be afraid to go down into Egypt. Um, God probably knows what Jacob's feeling, right? It's a little bit of fear here. And he says, don't be afraid. He goes on to communicate that he's going to make him into a great nation there. And that he will go with him and then bring him up again. Now, that statement, I will bring you up again, is really prophetic. And it's prophetic. You can make a note on this in Genesis fifteen thirteen, where God says for 400 years, your people will be in a nation that is not their own. And then I will bring them up out of that. So God simply put here is reaffirming what he's already said. That's really the first emphasis. God fulfills his promises. Turn to your neighbor and say, God fulfills his promises. Now, the interesting reality when we stop and think about this is the number one cause of fear in our modern day is really when we lose sight of God's sovereign hand. If we really stop and think about that, when we lose sight of the sovereignty of God, and you may encounter people, well, you, not may, you will encounter people who have no concept of the sovereignty of God at all. And in those settings, in those instances, you will find that there is a lot that scares people who are separated from God. But when we think about that, that really should be less surprising to us than when people who claim the name of Jesus are crippled by fear. Why? Because fear is a symptom that my eyes are not fixed on something steady. I don't know if, you, if you've ever been out on the ocean, uh, but if you've ever experienced seasickness, it's awful. I went on one deep sea fishing trip, and it was the most expensive nap I've ever taken. And every time I would, I would wake up and think, oh, I'm doing good, I'd stand up, and then instantly I'm back down. I'm like, nope, can't do it. And they kept telling me, pick a spot that's not moving and that'll help. It really didn't help in that situation, which is where this illustration falls apart. But the concept is exactly what we are called to as the church. They're in the midst of the waves and tossing seas where you're starting to get a little bit motion sick and you're feeling really not okay, you need to ask the question, where am I fixing my eyes? I'm going to be afraid if I take my eyes off of that which is firm. 
And that's exactly why God is reminding Jacob what is most important. Number one thing, this really should be the solution to almost any fear we have. Simply the statement, he is God, I am not. If we really believe that, it changes who we are. And yet the reality is what often is revealed by our fears and our anxieties and everything around us is that it's not enough for us, for Him to be God. I need to be able to control this. And I'm going to tell you, the, the place you will experience and find the greatest peace is when you set your eyes on the one who is immovable. And it is not the organization called the church. It is not the person sitting next to you. It is not your number in your bank account. It's not the career you've had or the education you've achieved. It's not your marriage. It's not the relationships you've developed over decades. It's not scholarships or educational prowess. It's not the sports you play or the achievements you rack up. All of that church family will die. All of it will pass away. That's exactly why Jesus over and over said, fix your eyes on the things above, not the things on earth. Where he said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break it and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jacob here is not different than us in the sense that there, he, he has a lot of valid reasons for being concerned. And yet God intersects in the midst of this and begins, I am God. That in and of itself could be the application for today. Do you believe that he is God or not? If you believe he is God and you believe he doesn't change, then you are secure. Now, to preface this a little bit, you can believe that God exists and not be surrendered to him. And then you're not saved. But at the heart of this, I want to speak specifically to you, brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be some of the most fearless people on the planet. Because we know that he is God and we are not. And I know, as he reminds Jacob, I'm going with you to Egypt. And he, he promises pros- prosperity there. But then there's this prophetic utterance that I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to go down with you to Egypt, and I'm also going to bring you up again. We'll get into that a little more in a minute. Jacob leaves Beersheba, and the whole list of family members is given to account for those who went up to Egypt from the beginning. And now we see here, later in chapter 46, the great uniting of Joseph and his father, After decades apart, look at verse 28 with me. Chapter 46, verse 28. He had sent Judah, that would be Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, In Goshen, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, 
since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's house, I will go up to tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, what happens here is they come before Pharaoh. And they do exactly what Joseph says. And then Pharaoh responds in verses 5 through 12 of chapter 47. Look at that with me. It says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, stood him before Pharaoh and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojournings. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. There's a second reality here that we see played out in this when we look at the character of God, and that is that God is protector. Now, you could step in in the midst of this and say that all that was taking place here was due to Joseph's diplomatic skill and his reputation in Pharaoh's house. But let's not forget who was ultimately responsible for Joseph being where he is. This is where the bigger picture is really important. Let us not forget who it was that affirmed Jacob should go to Egypt and say, I'm going to go with you. Let's not forget whose redemptive plan is coming to fruition right now. In light of God fulfilling his promises, we see this lived out in his protection for Israel and his family. And this has been God's plan all along. Through trial, through famine, through strange lands, God was not only faithful to fulfill His promises, but to protect them along the way. In the scope of time, as this all unfolded and as the famine continued on, the nation of Egypt spent All of their money buying food and then all of their livestock buying food and then eventually all of their land that they owned buying food in order to survive. And it was through Joseph's careful planning that we see the needs of the people met and they were pleased with the outcome of this. So look at chapter 47 verse 23. 
23 through 28. It says, Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and get this. They gained possessions in it, were fruitful and multiplied greatly, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Now notice in this first section of this that uh, what, what is really absent here, and it is Egypt who ends up in this position of selling everything they had, And yet Israel prospers in the land of Goshen. Now, as we read that, we shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because this is all part of God's redemptive plan. And not only does God fulfill his promises, not only is God protector, but God is provider. He's provider. And he proves this again and again throughout Scripture. Now, what we generally don't like when we read Scripture and we consider God as provider is that oftentimes He does not provide the way we want Him to provide. God provides according to His plan, not ours. Which means there may be seasons of your life that in order for God to provide for you in the grand scheme of things, it requires you lose stuff along the way. Think about that. In your mind, that might seem backwards, and yet you don't have the whole picture. None of us do. Which brings us back to this place of where is my faith rooted? Where do I have my eyes set? If they're set on He is God, and His plan will prevail, then in the midst of aspects of protection and provision and all of these things, then I should be the most stable person. And what we find, and I'm, I'm concluding myself in this family, what we find is that how we respond to adversity often reveals where our eyes are fixed. And for a majority of us, they are not fixed in the right place. There's something to be said there about community as well. Because In the early phases of this, recognize that Joseph was already gathering what God was doing. But the rest of his family really had no idea yet. In their mind, they were just concerned about the famine. And so there may be seasons of your life when other people are who you need to surround yourself with because they have their eyes fixed in the right place. That's where community becomes crucial. If I do this all on my own and I'm sitting back by myself, I'm going through hardship, no one else knows, and I'm just, I I wonder where the Lord is. I need people who are going to remind me. 
can't do this alone. God is provider. The hard truth of this to understand is that God's sovereignty is not contingent on our prosperity. Think about that. God's sovereignty is not contingent on our prosperity. We see this in Exodus as the leadership in Egypt shifts and Israel is enslaved, ultimately leading to the raising up of Moses and God freeing his people from bondage. Was God any less in control then as he was when he brought them into Egypt? The answer is no. Let us not in the midst of our trial become a people who would say God is silent or God is not working. For it is often in those seasons that God is most at work in our personal formation. Now as we look to the end of chapter 47, there is one last important observation as it relates to practical application when we consider the character of God. Look with me at verses 29 through 31. says, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. At the end of 47, what we see here is Jacob's faith in the promises of God. This is visibly seen by him making Joseph to swear to bury his body with his fathers in the land of Canaan. The easy thing would have been for Jacob... To be buried where his family is now. Yet his dying wishes were to have Joseph swear that he would take him back. Why is this significant? In Genesis 23, Genesis 25, we see Abraham is buried. Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, and Leah are buried there. As we see, we'll see in Genesis chapter 49, verse 31. All of this asking, what is the bigger question here? This just seems trivial and yet revealed a faith that God would do exactly what he said he would do. Clear back in Genesis 15 when he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. God is faithful to his promises. Do we believe that? And so I want to ask you one simple question. And who is your faith? Everything that we encounter today, church family, whether good or evil, is ultimately for our redemptive and sanctifying good. It can be hard for us to grasp. If we can both see that truth and believe it, it will change our lives. So what does having this kind of faith look like today? I want to give you just four specifics of what biblically this looks like. To have our eyes set on the one who fulfills his promise, who protects, who provides, who our faith should be in. 
First off, being willing to sacrifice everything to keep the promises of God in the forefront of our mind. Are you willing to lose everything you have because you know the most secure place you can be is in the will of God, which is his word, by the way. God's will is not some abstract thing you have to try and figure out, family. It is his word. Are you willing to sacrifice everything for what God has said is true? Being the most hope-filled because we know that in the mess, God is sovereign. Now, this doesn't mean we can't grieve. That's important for us to do. It doesn't mean we have to be these, woohoo, I'm happy all the time. It's not what it means. What it means is that we have, we should have the most hope. Because if you've spent any time in His Word, you know how it ends. Too often we go, oh, I don't know, I don't know what's happening in the world around us. I just don't understand it. I go, I understand it. I don't like it. But His Word said, this is what's going to happen. I will not be surprised, church family, if there comes a day that they take all of this away from us. And if they take all of this away, may we remain firm in what is true. Because that's what matters. None of this matters. It's great. I'm so thankful that we can gather here. But if the decision between this facility... And rooting into what is true comes up. It's not even a question. Because He is the only thing that lasts. We should be the most hope-filled people. Third, being the most driven because we know how the story ends. We have the greatest reason to be the boldest people. Not just the most hopeful, but the boldest because we know how it ends and we know there is one way through Jesus. And lastly, what does having this kind of faith look like today? It looks like being obedient to his word in all situations because we know that his purposes are best. Regardless of what comes, we know that his purposes are best. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to sing one last song. And as they do, I want you to challenge yourself in this. And be able to honestly answer the question, who is your faith in? What is your faith in? And if you're not sure, come talk to me. Maybe some of you are just wrestling with a tension between what your faith is, is in and what you want it to be in. Come talk to me. And maybe you're in a season where you're struggling to figure out where is God in the midst of this. And I'm going to encourage you right now and say he's the same place he has been through every great season of your life and every valley. He has not changed. And the great hope and truth, family, is that He will not change. Fix 
your eyes on him. Father, as we come to you in this, may you reveal any way in us that has placed faith in something that is not you. May you open our eyes and help us to see clearly how we can be more like your son who was willing to walk in obedience even to death on a cross because he knew your way was better. Father, may we have that same spirit in us. May you mold us and form us in that way for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.